product managers and designers need to be able to listen one-to-one, listen at scale, and then understand the relationship between those things so that they can effectively build things that people will love, that they will use, that will solve their problems. This is Skilled by Design, a podcast for experienced designers and product managers that want to deliberately grow their skills and become better humans in the process. I'm your host, Tommy Bay, and today I'm talking with Steve Arns. Steve is an entrepreneur who's doing great things for, uh, in particular, for managers who want to up their skills, and I'll let him tell you more about that, but Steve has spent time as a product manager, was very successful in that space, and is just a really smart guy. I'm looking forward to continuing some of the conversations that he and I have been having around skills and a number of other things. So Steve, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Tommy, for having me. It's exciting. It's really my pleasure. To start off, tell me about Campfire. So Campfire, at the highest level, we're on a mission to improve and and accelerate access to discussion-centered learning. And so when I think about some of the most uh, impactful learning experiences that I've had. It's been in small groups, having very meaningful discussions with people who have experiences in spaces, facilitated usually by somebody really great who can generate the best thinking from the group. Mm -hmm. And access to that is pretty limited today because facilitation costs are high. The cost of developing great content is high. And so Campfire's aim and mission and goal in the long term is to bring down the cost of those things so that more people can have access to them. And so that's kind of the, the goal of any real technology is to provide access to a thing. And that's what we're trying to provide access to. Now at a lower level, we provide manager training right now to a dozen companies and more than a thousand managers. And we help to bring them together for those types of campfire discussions, we call them, nice. to be able to share their experiences openly with each other in an aim to just get better, to do better and be better as leaders and as people. I love that. So great. And you gave me a preview of one of those and I love the format. It's really a a great approach. Do you want to talk a little bit about how those trainings actually work? Yeah. So a typical training, and I love that you use the word training because training often is a bad word for people in companies. They think about things that are required or mandatory. They think about compliance. They think about often the training that we joke about is sexual harassment training. Mm-hmm. And that's something that everyone's required to do and take, or, you know, how do we handle personal identifiable information? So we've got this PII training that people dread that they have to take every year. And it's like, oh no, I got to take the PII training again. And it's a lot of like talking head or video stuff or like talk at you sort of content. Mm-hmm. That's our typical sort of perspective on training. We like to sort of flip the model. We have facilitators in our sessions we call them guides and our guides their mission is to create and hold space for conversation and dialogue Mm -hmm. for reflection and so 80 percent of our sessions our campfire sessions are reflection and discussion and 20 percent or less is actual instruction you know looking at a slide explaining a concept understanding a thing in that sort of a way and that's, that's called a constructivist approach to learning, where the meaning 
and the information is all created by the participants. It's a student-led sort of perspective on how we do these types of trainings. And so people are coming together, we're creating and holding space for open, honest, vulnerable conversations about shared experience so that people can identify best practices and take action effectively to become uh, these better leaders. I, I know how much research has gone into uh, crafting the, the content and these spaces that you're talking about in your trainings. Can we spend just a second talking about some of that research, that process that you went mm. through to figure out where you wanted to, to help managers focus and what you learned about skills and skill development in the process? Yeah. So the company started actually as a company that was focused on providing a book club experience to teams inside of companies. And so we found, especially as the pandemic started, and we were born right at the beginning of the pandemic, that people were wanting to find more ways to connect with each other and across these boundaries that we now have. And, and it, it became even more common than it was before. And it was pretty common before for people to say, let's read a book together. Let's get on a Zoom call. And let's have a conversation about that book. So the book becomes this shared purpose across these boundaries for people to be able to come together. So it used to be that we had an office and we came together in the office and we found ways to connect over food or a variety of other things, games, things we did together in person. And then the book became a gathering place over Zoom. And so we actually found 20 companies that were excited enough about this to work with us and start to host their book clubs using our technology and our mechanics. And, and we met this woman named Davina. She owns a company called Book Browse and she studied book clubs and she talked to thousands of people about them. And we read like a, a 30 or 40 page paper that she wrote about book clubs and their mechanics and how people learn together, essentially. Mm. Uh, what are the key components of that in terms of shared purpose? How does facilitation work and not work? And that was the foundation of coming up with this new mechanic for manager training is actually the time that we spent in researching and discovering around book clubs. And one of the interesting things about book clubs is that they are so organic. Like, if you just think to yourself, can I think of somebody I know who's in a book club? Have I ever been in a book club? They're fairly universal. You'll find one in any neighborhood. You'll find one in any company. Yeah. They just happen. They seem to just spring up from the earth organically. <laughs> and, and so there's this really interesting opportunity that you have to observe something organically and then learn from that organic thing and take it into another problem and be able to solve another problem with that organic thing. Book clubs became a really fertile ground for us to plant some additional ideas and start to mix some different things. And sometimes I actually regret the year that we spent as a book club company. I think to myself, oh, if we only knew what we knew now a little <laughs> sooner, we could have skipped that year. And we'd actually be making more money now and we'd have more users now and there'd be a better product now. And this is the first time in a long time in this conversation right now that I've thought to myself that I'm grateful for the time that we spent sort of bumping around in the dark with this 
organic thing that is book clubs so that we could learn just the natural processes of gathering and learning. I love that. That's like life, right? That's anything that happens to us. If we can take the time, usually we can figure out a way to be grateful for the learning, but sometimes it takes, takes extra effort to get there. Sure. Anyway, so what happened after the, the book clubs? Yeah, so we were not making enough money. The thing <laughs> is, is I don't, I don't know if you know this about companies, but very few of them have a line item on their budget that says book clubs. <laughs> so they have maybe learning and development budget, but usually this organic thing that is a book club like didn't need any of that budget because it was happening just on its own naturally without any spend necessary. And so people were going up the chain to find money and saying like, there's this company that helps us do these book clubs better. And most leaders were saying to them, well, you know, like you were doing it fine before, weren't you? They're like, no, not really, but you'll keep doing it without us spending any money on this company. Right. And they're like, yeah, I guess we will. Okay, cool. Well, you know, we've got some other things we've allocated the money to. So you go keep doing your book club and we'll go spend the money where we've decided <laughs> to spend it already. Does that sound okay to you? And so there is a, a fundamental understanding of businesses that we just needed to get to. And you sort of intellectually know it, but then when you start a company, you realize how true it really is and, and what it means. And so you have to find a place where people are actually spending money. And as we went out into the world and started talking to the people who were using our things, who weren't, and asked them lots of questions, uh, particularly asking them the question, if you could take this book club mechanic and use it to solve any problem, what problem would you use it to solve? What would be the most important problem you can imagine solving with a book club? And about 85% of the people that we talked to, because we were talking to HR and talent leaders and some executives, they all said, strengthening our leaders, building better managers and strengthening our leaders. Hmm. Within a month, because there were so many consistencies and similarities with approach, we were able to pivot the business from a book club business to a manager effectiveness, a manager training business. The initial pivot was we will take a single book that is about creating effective managers, The Making of a Manager by Julie Zhu. We will distribute copies of that book to every manager that we're going to train. And then we will build very intentional, deliberate discussions around the key concepts of the book and spread it out over a six month period. And so we just ballooned the book club from a thing that happens maybe in four weeks and has some pretty light discussion to something that had some really meaningful, deep discussion with this space for people to talk about their experiences. And we created something that maybe felt a little bit like a book club, but very much also felt like the best manager training you've ever experienced. Awesome lateral movement. I appreciate that. The research that went into the skill development itself. I know mm -hmm. that you let me peek at some of your work and notes, and I was very impressed by all of the, the thought and effort that went into that. Um, will you tell me a little bit about highly transferable skills versus yeah. those that are more specialized? So in the early days of Campfire version two, it was manager training. We needed to identify essentially a syllabus of sorts. And at this point, we weren't thinking in terms of like 
an enduring subscription product. We were thinking of just being able to create enough sessions that people would keep buying from us and keep having new and fresh content to do. And so we needed to figure out the skill footprint. I looked at, I don't know, 10 to 15 different sources of research and companies that are doing skill development. And we were looking for a couple of things. Number one, how transferable is a skill? And what transferability means is I can take a certain skill and apply it to any particular role. It transfers across roles. And we can, sometimes people call them durable skills, sometimes human skills, mm-hmm. because it's those things that can't be replaced by robots. And we had a scale zero to one, and it's a zero if it's not transferable at all. And it's a one if it's fully transferable across every single role. It applies to every single role. So a skill that might be a one on the scale is something like empathy. And a skill that's a zero on the skill is like replacing the lug nut on a particular piece of machinery, you know, that's very specific. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that could be done by a robot in in many cases, or, or a person that's just highly specialized on an assembly line to just do a thing over and over and over again. And then empathy is something that we can't really give to the robots. It's also something that you can use in pretty much every context. Now, that was one piece of our framework. Almost everything interesting, as you know, can be put into four quadrants. Um, <laughs> that's what you learn if you get an MBA. I haven't gotten an MBA, but I've decided that pretty much everything can just be put into the four quadrants and then you're good. Our four quadrants would be, you know, how transferable is it highly and not, and then how relatable is it in terms of being able to transfer the skill through discussion? So does the skill actually start to build and grow and develop through discussion with other humans, like this campfire mechanic? So we wanted to find campfire applicable highly durable human transferable skills. And those were the things that we wanted to focus on the most. An example of that would be listening, where you can learn to listen by listening in a campfire setting. You can also learn to listen by hearing from others, their strategies that they use to more effectively listen to others. And so that's a very campfire applicable skill because it's transferable across roles, And it's also something that can be enhanced through discussion-centered learning or campfires. Very cool. And that resonates with with a lot of the research that I've done that helped me shift my my perspective a little bit, because I've been trying to articulate what the difference is between what we've traditionally called a hard skill and and a soft skill. And as I got into it, that didn't make as much sense. But when you boil it down to what can you replace with a robot and what can't you what are the human skills? I really like that perspective. What are the skills that are applicable in a variety of settings in a number of places, uh, a skill that you can develop that you could leverage other places versus a skill that you develop that isn't going to do you much good anywhere else? Just to give an example of a transferable skill that doesn't lend itself to a campfire, being able to use Google Calendar and email, highly transferable. Mm-hmm. Pretty much every role, right? Yeah. Um, not really conducive to sitting around a, a campfire and talking about how do you manage your email? That's not <laughs> something that come, comes up much while you're you know, roasting marshmallows. That is a good point. So listening, 
such a great skill when you're teaching listening. Is, is that something that you teach as one of your campfire sessions? Yeah, we have a session called deliberate listening. It's one of my favorites. So yeah. I like that. So tell me more about deliberate listening. What, what is it that you try to help uh, managers to, to understand with that one? So within the campfire session, we actually start the conversation by asking, who is someone living or dead that you'd like to have dinner with more than anyone else? When you think about that question, you're often thinking about someone that you might like to learn something from that might have some insights that would help you with your life, might be able to inspire you with their energy and passion for a thing or tell you stories about how they created a thing, all of those sorts of things. And so the question lends itself to a really great thought experiment around listening. And so everyone goes around the room. You might have 15 people around the campfire, if you will. And they're all sharing these people. And for me, it would be Lin-Manuel Miranda right now. And, and if I'm sitting at dinner with Lin-Manuel, one of the best storytellers of our generation, and if, if I go away from that dinner having talked more than I listened, I guarantee you I'll regret it for the rest of my life. The rest of my life, I will think to myself, you blew it. You had dinner with Lin-Manuel Miranda, and all you did was talk about yourself. You wanted to get all your ideas out and see if you liked any of them. You wanted to show him all the things you made and, and have created in your life so that he could think you're cool. And that would just be the ultimate tragedy to come away from a dinner with someone like that and have had spent the time that way. And so even just from the first moment of the campfire, this icebreaker, this spark, as we sometimes call him, you're starting to center yourself on this conversation about listening and thinking to yourself about how you might be more deliberate and intentional with the time and space. And so then right after that question, we invite people to think in your one-on-ones with your direct reports, do you find them as interesting as you would find Lin-Manuel Miranda? Do you think that you have something to learn from these people who are sitting across from you? Or do you think that you are the expert and that you need to be downloading all of your knowledge and energy and enthusiasm to them so that they can go and do their work. And it provides some really great opportunity and space for people to think about how intentional they're being. And then we invite people to think about mind and body and space. So what does the physical space look like in which you decide to listen and think with the people that you decide to listen and think with? How does your body language show intentionality? How can you lean into connecting in that sort of a way as you make eye contact or in Zoom world, make sure that your hands are visible so that they know you're giving them your attention so that you lean in to the conversation instead of leaning out and sometimes lean out so that you can show reflection on these things. And these aren't things that you want to robotically practice so that you can pretend you're listening they actually do impact the way that we listen. And so we should be intentional about how we use these elements, mind, body, space. There's this concept of check-ins that you can use to clear your mind. This is something that I learned from a man named Simon Lamb. He's in the UK. He runs a company called Purposeful Change. He's one of the best listeners on the planet. And he uses this concept of check-in where he says, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? And what might be distracting you? And then who are you? 
And he uses these questions at the beginning of almost every conversation. And it clears space for people to give attention. And so how are you, how are you leveraging these three key elements, mind, body, and space, to be able to be more intentional about that listening? And then there's some tools and, and things that we look at as well. Like, for example, in Zoom world, there's tools that can sit on top of Zoom that'll actually tell you how much you were speaking and how much the person you're talking to is speaking. And you can assess afterwards, like, I took up 65%, 70% of the airtime. I probably should try to like ratchet that down a notch and see how I can be more intentional. And so the goal of these campfires, though, ultimately to answer your question is to just help these managers to have enough space and time to actually think about and be intentional about the way that listening impacts their ability to effectively lead. So listening in team meetings is a thing that we ask them to reflect on and come up with strategies around. They go into a breakout room, they share their strategies with each other about how they can be more effective in team meetings and listen. And then how can you be more effective as a listener in, in these one-on-one conversations? Interesting. And you being familiar with the product development space, how, how do you see this applying to product managers and, and to designers? We have this very familiar concept of research in products, mm. uh, either user experience research, or there's all these different forms of, of research that we do. We do contextual inquiry where we actually sit in and with them in their space and ask questions. And so we're always doing either observation or inquiry. And these are two forms of listening. And we're listening to two types of data, qualitative and quantitative data. But at the end of the day, like the, the analogy that I use for people that I think is really helpful for product managers and, and UX designers is if you're familiar with the movie, mm-hmm. The Dark Knight. So Morgan Freeman takes Christian Bale, Batman, into the Batcave, deep into the Batcave area. And there's all these screens, these like television monitor screens and they actually show visually all of the phone conversations that are happening all over Gotham. And Christian Bale's like, hey, check this out. He's like, oh, this is evil. We can't listen in on every conversation in Gotham. This is like, we shouldn't be doing this. And they're using it for good in the movie. The point is, though, the ultimate goal for a product manager and designer is actually to be able to listen to that type of a scale. Because there are hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of conversations happening that relate to the experience that you're building that you need to be able to tap into. And you need to be able to somehow zoom out on all of that. I have a friend named Nate Sanders who has a product called Artifact. And the the product is built to tap into all of your data sources, quantitative and qualitative, and Mm -hmm. synthesize them into a picture of what people are saying and thinking. And at its best, it's the same thing as this dark night concept that I'm talking about, about being able to tap into all the phones. Product managers and designers need to be able to listen one-to-one, listen at scale, and then understand the relationship between those things so that they can effectively build things that people will love, that they will use, that will solve their problems. Interesting. So listening to individuals, zooming out, listening to the bigger picture through all of your data points. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's a big task. I think that a lot of people feel stuck when it comes to that. How do you do that? 
how do you how do you get access to all of that information so that you can listen so i think i think one of the ways we can get stuck is by imagining an ideal that perfect state that morgan freeman bat cave and because we don't know how to create that we don't do the simple first step which is listening to one person and just getting out of the building right so we're like, well, I can't, I can't do it. So I won't do it. I was working with a designer, a UX designer, his name's Devin Little at Instructure. We were feeling stuck. We were getting inside of our own heads and trying to design things and had quite a few debates about where we should take things. And one day it hit us that we just needed to get out of the building. And so I said, Devin, I'm just going to go start interviewing people. He's like, well, you know, we have to find the right people that are in our segment, that fit our user profile, our user persona. And I said, no, I'm just going to start listening. I don't even care who to. I'm going to go down to the local university and I'm just going to tap people on the shoulder and ask them if I can sit down and talk to them for 15 minutes. And I'm going to start into our discussion guide around figuring out how people get where they want to go in their careers. We're just going to start asking them questions. And we're going to see where it takes us. And so I'm going to be at the university, at the cafeteria on Monday at 8 a.m. I hope you're there with me. And so he decided to show up and we sat down at different cafeteria tables and started having conversations. How did you get to this point in your career? Where do you plan to go and how do you plan to get there? We were building a career development product. Mm-hmm. We had the first conversation and Devin turns to me and he's like, this is not our user, but that was amazing because he was able to start to feel the shape of this problem that is career development started to become very clear and apparent to him. So let's have another one. So we go and have another conversation. We listen and he's drawing on his iPad pro, these sort of sketch notes to try to define kind of the shape of this problem and start to feel it and understand it. And we had another one. And then he said, let's go over here. And so we went over to the MBA lounge where people who are closer to our buyer persona would be accessible. And we just sat outside the MBA lounge. These graduate students who had had deeper careers already and were at this kind of pivot point. And then we had five more conversations. And then he said, I I think I understand and feel the shape of this problem. I've got some questions I want to ask people in our buyer persona segment. And so then we put out a, a LinkedIn post and said, who wants to talk to us about their careers? These are the types of people we're looking for. And we had 25 people respond. We scheduled meetings and then over the next two weeks, we had interviews with 25 people and they were hour long interviews and listening is exhausting, by the way. I don't know if you know this, but if you do it really, really well, it can drain you quite a lot. It's work. You feel like you're doing very little because you are in its best state, but leaning in and giving your full attention to someone requires real work. And we had these 25 conversations and by the end of it, we really started to understand the shape of this problem that is career development. We built a paper prototype and then we put that in front of people. And then we took that paper prototype and you create the synthesis with all these sticky notes where you do this affinity mapping on a whiteboard and you start to see the themes around ideas and the shape of the problem starts to take on more weight. And then uh, we started to build actual prototypes, physical prototypes, and we started to build Figma prototypes clickable things that people could use. And, and this problem really started to take shape in a very 
tangible sense with solutions that could actually help to solve the problem. But it all came from this very emergent listening that really just took taking that first step of let's just get out of the building together. And what was fascinating was how united we were at the end of this. So we came into this process feeling very misaligned. This is a common story, a PM and a UX designer not seeing eye to eye mm-hmm. on how a problem is shaped. And then when we both do listening together, the unity comes because we're not actually trying to align with each other. We're trying to align with the problem itself. Yeah, I love that. I had similar experiences where we would go and do uh, interviews, but we would take developers with us or QA uh, folks and let them sit and listen. And it was fun to see the developers who would recognize problems that they didn't know exist and would get excited and anxious to rush back and solve those problems before we'd even, you know, really talked through them. But it's, yeah, it, it is aligning. It is unifying to, to sit down and listen and come away with, with a better understanding of somebody's story. Love it. In our last minutes here, Steve, what advice would you give to anybody who wants to become a better listener? If, if I want to develop that skill a little bit more today, what would you suggest that I do? I think that the best place to start is not actually in your career space, but in your most meaningful and important relationships in your life. You have people that you're with every day. Could be a spouse or a partner, friends that you associate with, children, people in your community. Start where the pervasive, enduring relationships are and just tell the person that you're with that you're working on becoming a better listener and that you'd like to be a great listener for a minute. Is there anything that you would like to talk about if you knew that I was going to give you my full attention, that I would listen deeply and not interrupt you? Is there anything that you would like to talk about if that were the case? And then lean into that conversation, whether that's your 10-year-old child like I have or your wife, giving that time and space in those most meaningful places will allow you to really make it part of your identity, who you are. And, you know, to that point, one other thing that you can do is just to say, I am a good listener. Instead of saying, I'm I'm working on becoming a better listener, just, just say to yourself and say to others, I'm a good listener and just start to make that progress. I think that's powerful. I think that it's something that a lot of people struggle with is the negative self-talk and it's real. This, the things that you tell yourself become true. I, I really like that suggestion of tell yourself that you, that you are a good listener until you are uh, and it'll happen. I think those are wise words. Thanks, Tommy. If people want to learn more about Campfire, it's campfire.com. Campfire.com would cost me $1.2 million right now. So we went with getcampfire.com. You can find uh, me on LinkedIn and Campfire on LinkedIn as well. So fantastic. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Tommy.
And that will do it for this week's episode. Remember to get out there and deliberately listen, not just to your customers and users, but to the most important people in your lives. We'll see you next time on Skilled by Design.